Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to Read Aloud. We're going to test our volume here. That's a little better. <laughs> okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Oh, sorry. Welcome to Read Aloud. We've got a speci special program this week designed by uh, Rick Livingston and Michael Marcel. And thanks to all of you for coming out and participating in it. Thanks to our audience for braving the weather. And uh, I'll let Rick continue with the uh, program. Thanks. Okay, again, thank you. Thank you, Donna, for arranging the Read Alouds. Um, and thank, thank you, audience, for coming. Um, we'll be reading today from a collection of uh, mostly poetry, some prose, uh, in recognition and acknowledgement of the uh, closing phase of Michael Murciel's Beanfield project uh, just outside the Wexner here. Uh, the readers will be from uh, the Comparative Studies 550 class, which has been looking at and thinking about the Beanfield uh, all quarter. Um, and uh, there are copies of the program, the order of the, the reading on the table over there. Um, and uh, I, we, will, we will begin. Boy, I don't think I've ever used one of these. So, I'm going to start. This is Spell of Creation by Kathleen Rain. Within the flower there lies a seed. Within the seed there springs a root. Within the tree there spreads a wood. In the wood there burns a fire. And in the fire there melts a stone. Within the stone a ring of iron. Within the ring there lies an O. Within the O there looks an eye. In the eye there swims a sea. And in the sea reflected sky. And in the sky there shines the sun. Within the sun, a bird of gold. Within the bird, there beats a heart. And from the heart, there flows a song. And in the song, there sings a word. In the word, there speaks a world, a word of joy, a world of grief. From joy and grief, there springs my love. O oh, love, my love, there springs a world. And on the world, there shines a sun. And in the sun, there burns a fire. Within the fire consumes my heart, and in my heart there beats a bird, and in the bird there wakes an eye. Within the eye, earth, sea, and sky, earth, sky, and sea within an O, lie like the seed within the flower. Ode to Growth by John Updike. Like an all-tip breaking ice, the green shoot cleaves the gray spring air. The young boy finds his school pants cuffs too high above his shoes when fall returns. The penciled marks on the bathroom doorframe climb. The cells re-replicated. Somatotrophin comes bubbling down the bloodstream. A busybody with instructions for the fingernails. Another set for the epiderm. A third for the budding mammae, all hot from the hypothalamus. And admitting of no editing, 
lest dwarves result, or cretins, or neoplasms. In spineless crustaceans, the machinery of molting is controlled by phasing signals from nervous ganglia, located often in the eye stalks where these exist. In plants, a family of auxins shuttling up and down inhibit or encourage cell elongation as eventual shapeliness demands, and veto lateral budding while apical growth proceeds, and even determine abscission, the falling of leaves, for death and surrender are part of growth's package. It's just the eye's way of growing, my ophthalmologist euphemizes of the lens's slow stiffening and irreversible presbyopia. Skin goes keratinous. The epiphyses of the long bones unite with the shaft, and linear growth comes to an end. Comes to an end. Our aging's a mystery, as is our sleep. The protein codes, transactions more elaborate than the accounts of a thousand dummy trusts, have their smuggling secrets still. The meanwhile, let us die, rejoicing, as around us uncountable husks are split and shed by the jungle push of green and the swell of fresh bone echoes the engendering tumescence. Time's line being a one-way street, we must walk the tightrope or fly. Growth is life's lockstep. We shall never again sit next to Peggy Lutz in the third grade, her breasts a mere glint on the curve of her tomboy vigor and our whiskery doom within us of less dimension than a freckle. Anecdote of the Jar Wallace Stevens. I placed a jar in Tennessee, and round it was, upon a hill. It made the slovenly wilderness surround that hill. The wilderness rose up to it, and sprawled around, no longer wild. The jar was round, upon the ground, and tall and of a port in air. It took dominion everywhere. The jar was gray and bare. It did not give of bird or bush, like nothing else in Tennessee. The Lake Isle of Innisfree by William Butler Yeats. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honeybee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings, there midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow an evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear the water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in deep heart's core. 1892. Beans by Mary Oliver. They're not like peaches or squash. Plumpness isn't for them. They like being lean as if for the narrow path. 
the beans themselves sit quietly inside their green pods. Instinctively, one picks with care, never tearing down the fine vine, never, no not, never not noticing their crisp bodies or feeling their willingness for the pot, for the fire. I have thought sometimes that something, I can't name it, watches as I walk the rows, accepting the gift of their lives to assist mine. I know what you think. This is foolishness. They're only vegetables. Even the blossoms with which they begin are small and pale, hardly significant. Our hands or minds, our feet hold more intelligence. With this I have no quarrel. But what about virtue? Hoeing by John Updike. I sometimes fear the younger generation will be deprived of the pleasures of hoeing. There is no knowing how many souls have been formed by this simple exercise. The dry earth like a great scab breaks, revealing moist, dark loam, the pea roots home, a fertile wound perpetually healing. How neatly the green weeds go under, the blade chops the earth new. Ignorant, the wise boy who has never, who has never rendered, thus the world fecunder. Mushrooms by Sylvia Plath, 1959. Overnight, very whitely, discreetly, very quietly. Our toes, our noses, take hold of the loam, acquire the air. Nobody sees us, stops us, betrays us. The small grains make room. Soft fists insist on, heaving the needles, the leafy bedding. Even the paving, our hammers, our rams, earless and eyeless, perfectly voiceless, widen the crannies, shoulder through holes, we diet on water, on crumbs of shadow, bland, mammered, asking, little or nothing. So many of us, so many of us, we are shelves, we are tables, we are meek, we are edible. Nudgers and shovers, in spite of ourselves, our kind multiplies. We shall, by the morning, inherit the earth, our foots in the door. Naming the Field by David Hart. We here call this grass. You can pick it like this. It is the earth's hair, feel hair, on your head. Pick a strand of grass, one of the earth's hairs. You can whistle through it like this. You can chew it and spread out. It is a kind of carpet. This is what we call rock, sticking through the carpet. The rock is not a strand, but it is hard, like my head. You see, if I tap it, but harder than head. This flowing through the field we call stream. Field is carpet between hedges, and stream divides it. Is this place the end of your pilgrimage, or are you only passing? Have you become astray here? Hedge is what we call this flowing upwards of shrubs and bushes, of runners and nests, 
of parasitic blooms. The field, and it's flowing to us through time, is named St. Alphages, who was beaten to death with ox bones. These, under the skin, we call bones. You see, I am thin, my bones thick through, almost like rocks. This all around us, invisible, we call air. See, when I breathe my lungs, fill with air. I have had my place here. I wash my bones under my skin. And the stream, so as to be clean. When the earth claims me back, this splash, splash, we call marsh. These reeds in the marsh are the long, thin gravestones of those who went straight down, thrilling to the call of the steep, deep, their bodies long, thin needles. This won't hurt, this won't hurt a bit. I cannot explain home. It is not room, nor is it contained within stone walls. The stream is at home in field. Rocks are, air is, grass is, honeysickle is, smell it, and I am. Response by Talia Shabte. There is a world of objects that are full of interpretation. Light hits the roses on my kitchen table, and red happens. Red is an event that is assembled like this. What is the event of architecture in the light? At night, architecture is the theater of darkness, stillness, muffled sounds of restless neighbors, and the occasional beeping of a message from 3,000 miles away. My bedroom is the globe theater before the sun rises. In my mind's eye, before I reach the light switch, characters are constructed. My chest expands and contracts, and I hear the ticking of my clock. Air moves in and around me. I can feel it. The air, once warmed by my body, exits through my nostrils and passes over my lips. No, experienced sensations are real and have real implications. Red is an event that is assembled like this. This sentence is translated from thought to light. I try to touch the light, but it vanishes if I get too close. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Landscape consists in the multiple overlapping intricacies and forms that exist in a given space at a moment in time. Landscape is the texture of intricacy, and texture is my present subject. Intricacies of detail and varieties of form build up into textures. A bird's feather is an intricacy. The bird is a form, the bird in space, in relation to air, forest, continent, and so on, is a thread in texture. The moon has its texture too, its pitted and carved landscapes, and even its flattest seas. The planets are more than smooth spheres. The galaxy, the galaxy itself is a fleck of texture, binding and bound. But here on Earth, texture interests us supremely. Wherever there is life, there is twist and mess. The frizz of an arctic lichen, the tangle of brush along a bank, the dog leg of a dog's leg, the way a line has got to curve, split, or knob. The planet is characterized by its very jaggedness, its random heaps of mountains, its frayed fringes of shores. A 
I'm going to read two. The first is an original Gary Snyder poem, and the second is a Gary Snyder translation of a poet named Hanshan, or Cold Mountain. This is Paiute Creek by Gary Snyder. <clears throat> One granite ridge, a tree would be enough, or even a rock, a small creek, a bark shred in a pool. Hill beyond hill, folded and twisted, tough trees crammed in thin stone fractures. A huge moon on it all is too much. The mind wanders. A million summer, night air still and the rocks warm. Sky over endless mountains. All the junk that goes with being human drops away. Hard rock wavers. Even the heavy present seems to fail. This bubble of a heart. Words and books, like a small creek off a high ledge, gone in the dry air. A clear, attentive mind has no meaning but that which sees is truly seen. No one loves rock, yet here we are. Night chills. A flick in the moonlight slips into juniper shadow. Back there unseen, cold, proud eyes of cougar or coyote watch me rise and go. And this is the second poem by Cold Mountain. Cold Mountain is a house without beams or walls. The six doors left and right are open. The hall is blue sky, the rooms all vacant and vague, the east wall beats on the west wall, at the center nothing. Borrowers don't bother me, in the cold I build a little fire, when I'm hungry I boil up some greens. I've got no use for the kulak, with his big barn and pasture, he just sets up a prison for himself. Once in, he can't get out. Think it over. You know what might happen to you. The One Thing That Can Save America by John Ashbery. Is anything central? Orchards flung out on the land, urban forests, Rustic plantations, knee-high hills. Are place names central? Elm Grove, Adcock Corner, Storybook Farm? As they concur with a rush at eye level, beating themselves into eyes which have had enough, thank you, no more, thank you, and they come on like scenery mingled with darkness, the damp plains, overgrown suburbs, places of known civic pride, of civil obscurity. These are connected to my version of America, but the juice is elsewhere. This morning, as I walked out of your room after breakfast, cross-hatched with backward and forward glances, backward into light, forward into unfamiliar light, was it our doing? And was it the material, the lumber of life, or of lives we were measuring, counting? A mood soon to be forgotten in crossed girders of light, cool downtown shadow in this morning that has seized us again? 
I know that I braid too much my own snapped off perceptions of things as they come to me. They are private and always will be. When then are the private turns of event destined to boom later like golden chimes released over a city from a highest tower? The quirky things that happen to me and I tell you and you instantly know what I mean. What remote orchard reached by winding roads hides them? Where are these roads? It is the lumps and trials that tell us whether we shall be known and whether our fate can be exemplary like a star. All the rest is waiting for a letter that never arrives, day after day, the exasperation until finally you have it, have ripped it open, not knowing what it is, the two envelope halves lying on a plate. The message was wise and seemingly dictated a long time ago. The truth is timeless, but its time has still not arrived, telling of danger and the mostly limited steps that can be taken against danger. Now and in the future, in cool yards, in quiet small houses in the country, our country, in fenced areas, in cool shady streets. Song on the end of the world, Cheslav Miwosh. Can you hear me? No? That better? Am I here? I'm not used to microphones. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm not afraid of talking in front of people, but microphones scare me. All right. A song on the end of the world, Cheslav Miwosh. On the day the world ends, a bee circles a clover, a fisherman mends a glimmering net. Happy porpoises jump in the sea. By the rain spout, young sparrows are playing. And the snake is gold-skinned, as it should always be. On the day the world ends, women walk through the streets under their umbrellas. A drunkard grows sleepy at the edge of a lawn. Vegetable peddlers shout in the street, and a yellow-sailed boat comes nearer the island. The voice of a violin lasts in the air and leads into starry night. And those who expected lightning and thunder are disappointed. And those who expected signs and archangels' trumps do not believe it is happening now. As long as the sun and the moon are above, as long as the bumblebee visits a rose, as long as rosy infants are born, no one believes it is happening now. Only a white-haired old man who would be a prophet, yet is not a prophet, for he's much too busy, repeats while he binds his tomatoes. There will be no other end of the world. There will be no other end of the world. Um, I thought I would read a selection from a foreword by um, Verlin Klinkenborg from this book, uh, which is a book of portraits of animals. And so in some ways I'm marking a transition from the vegetable to the animal kingdom. And on my way over, I, I noticed, I didn't um, intend it, but um, this group of animal photographs is in the New York Times section called Dining Out. When I was a boy, 
So these stories always begin. I spent a summer or two on my eldest uncle's farm in northwestern Iowa. It was a farm where my father was raised. And when I say I spent a summer or two there, I mean it's summer in all my memories of the place. The sun is hot on the cracked sidewalk leading down from the back door to the garden gate. The lilacs are long over. The grove is full, ominous in leaf. But in photographs from my father's childhood, it is often winter on the farm. And you can see in those photographs that the farmsteads in the distance have been joined, not separated, by the snow lying out on the fields. In the mudroom between the kitchen and the back door of the farmhouse, there were signs of winter even in the summers when I came to visit. Enormous quilted overalls, oil stained at the cuffs, hung by the nape on the hooks, like headless convicts all in a row. I knew that in winter the mud in the machine yard froze into unbelievable shapes, and I imagined, though I never saw it, that in the animal yards a fog sometimes lay dormant just above the backs of the cattle, and that in the low houses where the chickens and pigs were kept, the body heat was often oppressive, too liquid, too penetrating to tolerate for long. On that farm were dairy cows, beef cattle, hogs, and both the laying and cooking kinds of chickens. In my father's day, there had been draft horses and sheep and geese and a goat or two as well. In other words, there had lived on that farm at one time or another bulls, steers, heifers, cows, calves, boars, sows, shoats, gilts, colts, fillies, geldings, mares, stallions, roosters, cockerels, hens, pullets, ganders, geese, goslings, rams, ewes, kids, and lambs. To each of these, a breed name was also assigned, and each came in a color that could be named specifically too. Some of these creatures also had personal names, or an impromptu moniker that singled out a uniqueness, like a twisted horn or a hostile temperament. All of these distinctions I was unaware of all of these distinctions I was unaware to me even the difference between beef cattle and dairy cows was confusing but what was not confusing was the appeal of these animals their power over my imagination even now remembering those days more than 30 years ago I feel as though I'm looking past the horizon of my own life and into a painting by constable in the afternoons, the dairy herd really did walk up an elm-shaded lane to a small, heavily trodden yard where they stood, like patient petitioners from Dostoevsky, meticulously aware of rank, waiting to be admitted to the milking parlor. The door would be slid back on its rollers, and one Holstein, always the same one, would make her way up the concrete ramp swinging her rectangular head side to side as she came through the doorway, and then stepping along the barn to her stanchion with all the gravity of a town woman carrying a hot dish to a church supper. The air would soon be filled with barn swallows and the rhythmic wheezing sound of the automatic milkers. Almost every day I found myself in a corner of the farmyard where the hog fence met the side of a granary, 
There, I could stand on one of the fence rails, being careful not to let my feet poke through to the other side, and I could look in on the life of pigs. Unlike the humid climate in the furring house next door, the atmosphere above the hog pen seemed to be filled with a molecular dust that held the light. There were bogs of mud in the low spots, as there are in every good hog pen. Yet, this was an overwhelmingly dry place, the locus of an effete, hair-splitting rationalism espoused by thin-skinned philosophers who were also profound students of their own bodily comfort. The hogs lolled, they fretted, they batted their small eyes in the noontime light. They tried to convey their intelligence to one another and to me, but failed. All the wood in the pen, as high as a pig's back, was sanded smooth by their rubbing, which I did not understand until the first time I stroked a mature boar's pompadour and realized that it was bristle. Cleanliness was, of course, a fetish among the humans in the milk room, where the milk was filtered and cooled in a stainless steel tank, but it was no less a fetish among the hogs, with apologies to my Aunt Esther. Was the ground trough between meals? Its inner surface had been worn as smooth as ivory, as smooth as the trencher of an ascetic desert saint. But it wasn't only the animals I noticed, it was also the humans among the animals. I was struck, struck by my uncle Everson's fearlessness as he moved among the hogs, a fearlessness all the more remarkable because the hog pen had been represented to me as a terribly dangerous place. If a cow leaned too heavily on one of my cousins as he washed her bag before milking, he would simply thump her on her bony flank until she stood over. I, who had grown up almost solely among people, expected to see human responses from these animals, resentment, outrage, peevishness. I didn't realize that the high disdain with which the cattle treated my cousins was a form of comedy, or that the squealing of the hogs as my uncle moved among them was absurd self-dramatization. Do you suppose it was anyone's purpose, let alone the collective purpose of so many human generations, to breed so much dignity into farm animals? Who needed the intellect of the pig, its radical smartness? Who would set out to engender an eye as calm and unjudging, yet so capable of reflecting human self-judgment as the eye you see in the head of a cow. Yet, there they are, reminders of how utterly interwoven our fates have turned out to be. Farm animals are the product of coevolution with humans, or rather, we are the product of coevolution with them. They are twinned with us. The word that applies to our link with them is neither bond nor contract. It is covenant. Many of you will be holding a piece of paper from this hat. Does anyone not have a piece of paper? Amanda, come get a piece of paper. What, what you are holding is 
a fragment of a poem called The Afterlife. This is a poem that only exists right now, and it only exists to the extent that you, or we, are willing to read it. The poem begins with an epigraph from Thoreau, (coughs) which goes, A written word is the choicest of relics. It is something at once more intimate with us and more universal than any other work of art. It is the work of art nearest to life itself. It may be translated into every language and not only be read, but actually breathed from all human lips. kind of action we call thinking. The gift moves. It moves in a circle. Sovereign country, you can do what you want. Get married, get divorced, settle down, leave town, ski, farm, talk on the radio. Common lands for wood soil, dandelion, honey vine, milkweed, horseweed, speedwell, yellow nut sedge, broadleaf, planting, bittercrest, brownswell, devils, beggar, tips. Gratitude is a labor of the soul to effect its own transformation after the gift has been received. At each time, a new and essential world arose. At each time, the openness of what is, the 
fixing in place of truth and figure, a setting to work. Thank you. Moment by Kathleen Rain. Never, never again this moment. Never these slow ripples across smooth water. Never again these clouds white and gray in sky sharp crystalline blue as the terns cry, shrill in light air, salt from the ocean, sweet from flowers. Here coincide the long histories of form recurrent that meet at a point and part in a moment. The rapid waves of wind and water and slower rhythm of rock weathering and land sinking. In teeming pools, the life cycle of brown weed is intersecting the frequencies of diverse shells, each with its variant arc or spiral spun from a point in tone and semitone of formal octave. Here come soaring white gulls, leisurely wheeling in air over islands, sea pinks and salt grass, gannet and elder, Curlew and cormorant, each a different pattern of ecstasy recurring at nodes in an onflowing current. The perpetual species repeated, renewed by the will of joy, in eggs lodged safe on perilous ledges. The sun that rises upon one earth sets on another. Swiftly the flowers are waxing and waning. The tall yellow iris unfolds its corolla as primroses wither, scrolls of fern unroll, and midges dance for an hour in the evening air. The brown moth from its pupa emerges, and the lark's bones fall apart in the grass. The sun that rose from the sea this morning will never return, for the broadcast light that brightens the leaves and glances on water will travel tonight on its long journey out of the universe, never this sun, never this world, and never again this water. Does anybody else want to add anything at this point or have any questions? I have a question. What's your question, Michael? Uh, I'd be curious. <laughs> It was a wonderful selection and they just really all built up and it was thanks to everyone for participating in our final poem. I think that was really beautiful and you know it's something we all have in our experience now that we'll remember. So thank you.
each of you. Take the afterlife with you. <laughs> <laughs> Special thanks to Rick Livingston and Michael Marcel for coordinating this program and to all of you for your participation. Thank you.